Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. Also, if you haven't bought Reconstructing Inclusion, Making DEI Accessible, Actionable, and Sustainable, my book, please pick it up. We also have a Substack now under the name Reconstructing Inclusion. I'll be putting more content on that Substack before you know it. Welcome to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. I'm Omri Johnson, your host, and I'm joined today by Dr. Starling David Hunter III. I didn't get into asking you about the third, but we might get into that today. No but problem. welcome, Starling. It's a pleasure having you here today. Uh, my pleasure to join you, Omri. Fantastic. So before we get into the conversation standard to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast, we want to hear a couple things from you. The first one is a favorite song or movie that you go to over and over again. That would be uh, one called Music and Lyrics. It was Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore from, I think, about 2007. And the reason I like it is that he had a very interesting statement about they were under pressure to write a song. And his partner, played by Drew Barrymore, kept saying, I need inspiration. And he says, inspiration's for amateurs, right? It's like, you've got to be able to do it day in and day out. And, I, and it's like, that resonated with me. Plus right. the fact that, you know, as I was telling you earlier, my first paying profession was in theater and so on. So that resonated with me. So you don't need inspiration to act. You just have to show up and do it. Keep doing it. Yeah. Oh, you know, keep practicing and, and getting it done on the regular. Uh, and Fantastic. really know what to do should that inspiring moment come along. Yeah. I love that because, you know, you imagine like high level athletes, for example, that have to perform day in and day out. Do they always need inspiration before they make a game happen or make an extremely important point happen during the game? You know? Good way to think about it. Yeah. The next one is one book or one person that's influenced or inspired you personally or professionally in your career journey or in life. I would say Booker T. Washington, because look, it's not only a black American, black history sort of thing, but because of his attitude in terms of being a good strategist, for one thing, of recognizing the rather unique situation that black Americans were in at the time. And he took a social capital approach mm -hmm. to building relationships between people. He thought a, a path to integration and a better life for African-Americans, although that wasn't the term at the time, would be through relationship building. So mm -hmm. given what I do now, I find that very inspiring. I love a it. A man way ahead of his time. He would, If he would have had the computer tools, he probably would have been doing owner. Something like that <laughs> from the intellectual side, or he might've been very busy about the business of doing it. That's true. That's true. <laughs> That's probably high, much more likely, I'd say. Starling, please share your background with us. Tell us who you are in parallel with your work, as well as what you seek to create in the world. Uh, well, you know, sort of if we do it through an educational lens and sort of, you know, where in the country do it at the sort of the same time I was born in Los Angeles and grew up in Seattle. So my father was a military officer, my biological father in the, up in stationed at Fort Ord near Monterey. But he had to go away around the time I was born. So I ended up being born in Los Angeles. And well, you know, my mom, when she went to stay with friends, she had a Compton address. So I'm quite literally straight out of Compton. <laughs> You and NWA were hanging out, right? Yeah, yeah. 
You're about the same cohort too, yeah. like because we're all in that range. Easy yeah. and I were born on the same day, a year apart. Wow. So, but yeah, so but I grew up in Seattle, and then high school in Denver, and undergraduate at uh, Arizona State University in electrical engineering. Then went back to Seattle and worked as an engineer. Toward the end, I guess what we called didn't know it at the time, but the tail end of the Cold War. So right up until the early '90s, then went to Duke and got an MBA, then went and worked at Exxon Chemical and HR for a bit, went back to Duke, got a, for a PhD in organization behavior and strategic HR, the sort of things, organization design, then went to teach at MIT for seven years, and then with a little break spent in Dubai, and then another 10 at Carnegie Mellon. And now I'm located in Stockholm in Sweden. Fantastic. Yeah. So you've been a lot of places and seen a lot of different cultures and environments. I mean, I don't want to say that California is a completely different culture than other places, but you know, I have to make jokes about Californians because I have a lot of California friends. So California, the West Coast is not all created equal. Did How did kind of that con contrast LA was short period for you, I imagine, but Seattle, it's one of those places that was kind of at the boom of, has been at the boom of so many technological advances. Yeah, exactly. So if you think about it, you know, the West Coast in general is quite different. So having worked in the Northeast for a bit and then also spend a lot of time in the Southeast, one thing that surprises you is how many people, what you used to say back East, uh, haven't spent any time on the West Coast at all and are sort of un, kind of un, unaware of it, and vice versa, right? So, yeah, there are in a country that big, let alone Alaska, Hawaii, and then all the way down to Florida, there are substantial regional differences. Mm -hmm. So, as you know, also living in Europe, it's interesting to see how many people aren't aware of the local, very strong local or regional differences in the country, right? Yeah, so, we're all Americans, and we're as, about as unilateral as the French. Or a monolithic as the French, right? <laughs> so look, you know, having done that, I always saw moving around the country and getting different experiences as kind of uh, the thing to do because at a certain level in your education, particularly in business, you see the whole country as a job market and increasingly, you know, big swaths of the globe. So I was comfortable with that. And I don't know, you know, I never really thought about the degree to which my upbringing made me cosmopolitan in that way, I guess, as you know, the social or psychosociological term. But I've had an appreciation for that and, and then got more of it, you know, decided to even, you know, go overseas. Fantastic. Um, we're going to get to that because I think that's of critical importance to a lot of ways when I've talked to you, just how you see of uh, business, how you see the world, because sometimes the view that we have as Americans, if we've never spent time outside of our country, right. can be somewhat myopic. And we kind of impose America on everything, kind of the opposite of what we try to say we want to do, but we do it anyway. But I'll, I'll get to that. So you went from, as my cousin calls it, double E, electrical engineering, to organization theory. Yeah. How did you make that kind of connection and how has your current work bridged these two spaces in your opinion? So, uh, you know, I, I used to get that question at, and it's not as big a difference. It, it's closer than it seems, at least mm. in, in my experience. So a couple of things happened. Once 
having gotten to Duke and looking over before even classes started, and I saw a lot of quantitative things, something inside me said, you know, I've done a lot of the quantitative stuff already. I was comfortable with that set of skills. It's one of the reasons why I didn't apply to places like Carnegie Mellon and MIT, because I didn't want a lot. I wanted more something more qualitative. I don't know why I did. But then something very interesting happened is that I saw some things that were electives and I wanted to get out of them, see if I could take, you know, uh, or get out of some core classes and take some electives. And I tried marketing. I didn't know as much any marketing, really. I tried statistics, but I didn't know the kind of statistics they wanted. There was one thing left, and it was something called organizational behavior. I didn't even know what it was, right? But I walked up to the department and I asked them, you know, how do I take the exam? And they said, well, ask the professor down here. So I talked with him and he said, so have you, were you a sociologist, a psychologist, whatever? And he's going down the list, you know, economist, micro. And I said, no. And he says, well, what did you do? And I said, I was an engineer. And he said, oh, you're one of those guys that comes along every couple of years who doesn't think they need to take my class. And then I realized I had really stepped in it, right? I was slow, but I wasn't that slow. I was like, oh, my goodness. So he said, well, Mr. Smarty Pants, he said, if you think you can pass the exam or that you should, go down and get a textbook and read it and show up and take the exam. And so I was highly motivated because I knew if I didn't pass it, I was going to maybe be in his class and he'd remember me all semester. Right. But here's the thing. I went down and I took it. I, I got the textbook. I read it. And then I read a, a second one. And the thing that struck me over and over again was this, it all looked familiar. And I think it looked familiar because I'd been paying attention while I was working. Everything they saw, I said, oh, yeah, I've kind of seen that, right? So lo and behold, I actually passed the exam. Then other people said, who is this guy, this engineer who passed the exam? So I went and told them, they said, how'd you do that? And I said, I've been working for five years, so it all made sense. And they said, oh, that's a guy to kind of keep around. So next, the second year, I ended up being the TA for the class. And then I went out and worked. And then I came back and joined that department and got my PhD there. Wow. So that's kind of it. it so, you, so in a way, you were, you know, while you were working, you already had almost a natural ethnographic or researcher lens and you digested it so fast that the theory had already, you had the practice before the theory came in. Exactly. I, I like, I not thought of it that way, but that's, and I like the way you put it is that, and, and that's what one of the guys said. He said, that tells me that we're doing something right as a field. They said, because if someone who doesn't know the field exists can sit down and look through a textbook and see themselves in it and see their own experience reflected in it, then we must be doing a reasonably good job of codifying the world of work. He said, you know, it's only one case example, but, and so, so yeah, that was essentially it, that I was sort of attending to those things even while doing my other job as an engineer. So it kind of, it all made sense to me, or I could make some kind of relatively quick sense out of it. And then of course, dived in much more deeply. That's fantastic. Yeah. For some reason, Mintzberg keeps coming to mind when you're speaking about that experience. But I can't remember. I don't know why, but maybe it will come to me as. <laughs> well, interestingly, so I joined MIT and, and for the first two years with the strategy group, he was the first graduate of the MIT strategy program. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. So he's, he's a legend. Right? Yeah, he is indeed. Indeed. I've been. Yeah. I, I don't. There's something that's specific to that. It might come to me while we're talking. Otherwise, I'll talk to you about it later. So. 
I want to get into a little bit about the fact that you've lived outside of your home country for quite some time, or at least a pretty good period or chunk of time. It's been 18 years now. 18, wow. Doing so, what have you learned about people and their experiences ex-U.S.? What have you learned about yourself in that experience of being outside of the U.S. 18 years? Well, you know, one way to frame it is that how have I had to adapt, adjust my teaching? So that mm -hmm. since my teaching and my professional life, you know, as a social scientist, so I'm always viewing my professional life and my personal life through the lens of social science and social interactions and relationship building. So one of the greatest things that I've learned, and I think it'll apply to others as well, is like, look, if I were teaching, you know, math or physics, it's going to be the same. Mm. Although there may be, you might have to make adjustments for the way that people learn, but the underlying topics are very much the same and they don't need cultural adjustment. With social sciences, you do. So you have a bag or a bundle, whatever metaphor you want, of theories and explanations about what motivates people, what kind of experiences do they bring when they come and enter a job market, and what do they expect from a job, and so on, mm -hmm. and what's the national culture in which they're immersed, fine. And so when I brought those to, first stop was Dubai or just outside of Dubai, then I began to see immediately that a lot of those things didn't hold, which is fine. And then also that in order to help my students understand my perspective, I had to teach a lot of Americana, mm -hmm. underlying American culture to say, not so much to adjust to the Arab world, but to say, let me help you understand where these theories come from. So I kept having to question things that I never had to question before. That it was just assumed because I'd always taught Americans in America and there were things that we understood about the country that other people didn't. And so I think I didn't realize the degree to which many of our theories were couched in cultural assumptions that I'd never even had to make explicit, that we didn't have to make it explicit because we didn't have to explain them to 20-year-olds in the Middle East. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you spent a lot more time cr really creating the context. Yes, yes. And explaining, you know, puns, play on word, because I used a lot of television and movies. It's really fun. But what happened is when I got there, I was teaching and, you know, one of my students, a really nice gal from Kuwait, came one day and said, you know, Professor, some of the things you were just teaching us about teams and groups or whatever reminds me a lot of my favorite television show. I said, well, what's that? This is 2005. So she says, prison break. Like, prison break, prison break. That's the one where the guy gets into jail to break his brother out, right? She gives me the whole first season DVD set or whatever. And I looked at it and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, this is what we're doing from now on, right? So I would bring in TV clips, film clips. I started using The Office and anything else that you could think of, Lost, whatever were the popular TV shows at the time. And I said, I'm going to show this. And then we're going to talk about it that way, right? So that gave me a set of hooks and assumptions things that they could watch that were compelling. And then we would talk about and explain some of the things that to me were very obvious about certain interactions right. that were going on were not to them. Because right? culturally they just didn't even line up. And so that's how we did it. And we gravitated more and more as more TV workplace related content became available or whether it was The Apprentice or whatever it was, you know, undercover boss and, and so on. And then, you know, they, they would do that. So that's what I learned is that the, the theories uh, and the assumptions that you have are, are driven a lot by the cultural context and that a lot of times those are 
I don't mean it in a strictly psychological sense, but that they're subconscious, that you don't spend a lot of time thinking about them. Yeah, yeah. It, it just reminds me that context is the kingdom. Some people would say context is king. I'd say it's bigger than that. <laughs> it's everything that's behind the king, not just the kingdom, not just the king himself or herself. And yeah. it has the effect of paring down what you do to some, if you think about things the way I do, which is paring it down to essentials. There are other people might say, ah, now my model's even more intricate. Mm. And so I need to add all these extra contingencies. And I'm the kind of person that says, ah, it means we need to pare it down uh, to the bare bones and see what is it that's going to be, you know, true across the, the, the domains. And so that's the route that I went. But I respect that some people have done it the other way and uh, made their models more complex. That's what it helps them make sense of it, not for me to say they should do otherwise. So that's the minimalist in you. Yes. Okay. We're going to get to that too. So, so say all the places you've lived, I heard the Middle East. I know you're in Europe now. You obviously have lived in the U.S. in a variety of places. Is there something, is, what particular things have stood out for you? You talked about it in terms of your academic teaching. What things have stood out culturally in places that you've moved around to that you, any contrast you see or anything you notice about yourself when you're in different contexts? Well, you know, it's very interesting because from a psychological standpoint, people who are actors, and that's how I started out in life, tend to be high self-monitors. Hmm. So they're paying a lot of attention to the contextual clues and things that are going on around them. When they're disingenuous or immature, they can be a chameleon, which means that they don't really have any standard set of behaviors. They just try to imitate and to sort of you know fit in exactly wherever they go. Hmm. I think I'm still pretty much the same guy everywhere but I absolutely notice modifications in my personality or in, I won't say in my general outlook, but maybe noticing different ways in which I'm perceived. I think one of the biggest is that in, in the Middle East, I was very easily taken for an Arab of African descent, right? If I wasn't speaking, people would just assume that I was, you know, from Sudan or from somewhere else in the, or, or Egyptian. I went in, I stopped one day on the way home from school, driving back to my apartment, and there was lights on. It was a state. It was a friendly, actually, between I think Ukraine and Egypt. This is like 15 years ago. And so I parked the car and have anything to do. I go in the stadium and walk around looking for a seat. And then a bunch of Egyptians stand up and start waving to me, like. <laughs> so I went and sat with them. So, if you're taking your cues from the way that people perceive you. And then also here in Europe, in Western Europe, most of the uh, people, so there are a lot of black Americans. Right, here. right. We're a club here in, uh, right. in, in Stockholm, but walking around day to day, people assume you're an African immigrant. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't assume that you're American, uh, you know, at, at first glance. And so that's, uh, which is experience that you never have in the United States, right? So understanding that I'm perceived differently probably does bring out some different behaviors on my part. Sure. Sure. I, you know, what's been interesting for me is because as I'm learning German, mm -hmm. I can hear different. And so the more I'm around, I'm like, some stuff I'm like, did I hear that properly? It's rarely been like bad. It's just mm -hmm. been like, people are curious. So they might, even when they're talking to me, I can't always respond because I'm still working on being able to listen and respond in my lesson. But sometimes I'm like, wow, that somebody has that question and they feel comfortable asking it of me. Well, 
Yeah, and so you know, my wife is German. My daughter's in the German school mm. here, so meine Deutsch ist schlecht, aber but you know, so but yes, so Germany can be a bit different because since the end of World War II, there have been millions of of, of Americans and Black American men uh, who've uh, been in Germany and uh, brought wives home, and so which would include one of my uncles and my late wife was a half German and half African American, okay. so know that pretty well. And so there, people might assume differently, right? Because they're very used to having seen Black Americans or they're in Europe. Wow. Uh, but in Sweden, some other places, a little less so. Sure. Uh, and so it isn't really, the interesting thing is that it isn't really so much that it affects how I see me, but understanding that people might see me differently does then have, you know, it causes me to think about things and perceptions in a way or attend to certain social cues that I might not have done. Sure, sure. I would say that's a sign of cultural intelligence. And I think when you've moved around, you pay more attention to those cues. And sometimes before you go into an interaction, thinking about who you're going to be interacting with becomes more standard versus kind of just walking in and winging it like we do when we're in a place that we're really familiar, you know? Right. Or when I'm in, you know, in the summers, when I'm back in Georgia, Florida, and South Carolina, it's a different experience. Exactly. So that said, do you miss home? Do you ever thinking about, you know, in a course of a year, think about moving back home? I miss Whole Foods. Dude, <laughs> you know what? That is exactly what somebody, I told somebody that the other day. I'm going to the U.S. next week. We're recording in the beginning of September, and I'm going next week, and I'm like, is your office near Whole Foods? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, great, because that's where I'm going to have lunch. <laughs> My daughter and I were in London a couple of weeks ago, and we were there in the lobby and saw someone come through with a Whole Foods shopping bag. I stopped and I said, where, where did you sit? 200 meters up the road. I was like, I picked the perfect hotel. Perfect. Right? I think I know probably approximately where you were because I've tried to. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So I sometimes miss it, but I don't see myself like really vying to want to move back to the U.S. Not immediately for me, for personal reasons, family reasons. My daughter is just still in grade school, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. about to start junior high. So it you know, couldn't be within certain amount of time, cost of living kind of things can drive those considerations sure. if I'm thinking about retirement, but there's still so much to do and still a lot more of the world to see that although I may not always live here, it doesn't mean that I necessarily need to come right back. And you know, you and I, we have the luxury of knowing we could go back anytime we want to. Sure. I meet people here and they're like, you could be in the US and you're here instead. It's like, yeah, for them, it, it's a different thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, it feels good knowing you can and having the agency that you can go when you want to or not. <laughs> so I like the option. So you, I got a sense of your work in social capital and both from your you know working experience of it and then your more theoretical academic side of it. Some of the folks here don't know that the theory of change for Inclusion Wins, my firm, revolves around inclusion system design and development, which is basically creating systems and structures that have inclusion built in. The second one is around cultural intelligence and all of the skill set that's in there. And the third one's around social capital. And I got interested in social capital through working with Rob Cross uh, over a decade ago, 
doing a, a wide-scale organizational network analysis when I was still at the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research. Right. How did you get into the space of ONA, of organizational network analysis, and looking at social capital the way that you do today? Okay. So I started out as an org designer so that my thesis was uh, about organization structure. And when I got to Sloan in 98, MIT Sloan, there were people who were, the guy who was in the teaching group that I was in was a name that you might not know, but everyone deep in the field academically would know is Tom Allen. Tom did the same studies that Rob in the 60s. Mm -hmm. He was really the first person, 60s and 70s, to publish on that. He studied mostly engineers, research and development, because it was part of the management of technology right. group at, at the business school. So I learned about it from him because we did some teaching together. It wasn't quite my thing, but I got interested in it. And then there were several people in the department who were interested in it. And Rob was a graduate student over at the time. So he, you know, poked his head in over at our department because he's working with a guy, John Cummings, on a couple of ONA related papers. And so I liked what they did, but it didn't occur to me at the time how it could be leveraged to do more traditional large-scale organization structure and mm. change management. They were very much focused at kind of explaining how your social capital explains in differences in individual performance. I was more interested at the business unit and organizational level as a whole. So I continued doing that, but then eventually I ended up at Carnegie Mellon, which is another hotbed of that. And when I finally got around to reading, you know, Rob's books and so on as they came out in the mid or late 2000s, then I started incorporating that material into my own teaching of strategy mm -hmm. and organizational behavior. Mm -hmm. So I came to it by way of a different route, which was by way of more formal structure in design rather than from the psychology part up. That's fascinating because I think I've always been fascinated with organizational structures and designs. Mm -hmm. And how did you kind of start looking at the design of organizations, particularly informal structures, different as a result of your kind of foray from org design, which has a variety of theory, into network analysis that are oftentimes looking at the informal structures more than the formal ones. It seemed like you had to marry those two in a way that not everybody started off doing. I did. And so true to form and being not simple-minded, but liking simplicity. Because uh, I did have that discussion once with my department and he said, I'll, I'll get back to it, but he said, you know, there's a divided opinion about you, Starling. And I said, really, what's that? And he said, some people think you have a real knack for simplicity and, and sort of taking complex ideas and bringing them down to their bare bones essentials. He said, and other people think you're just simple-minded. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, thank you for your standard. Sure. Right. I said, I'm not worried because I know which one it is. Okay. So back to what we were talking about. Um, true to form, I took out, I started by taking out, uh, throwing out a bunch of stuff, which is I said, okay, let me just set aside, move to the side, all those things, those constructs in organization design that can't be measured from a graph mm. theoretical standpoint. So mm. things like centralization, standardization, those are great, but you can't measure them in a network sense, in a graphical sense. Mm -hmm. so I'm going to put those over on the side. Well, what do we have left? We have formal structure. What do people on that side call formal structure? The reporting relationship, 
relationships is the key, right? Once you frame or understand that organization design, traditional structure and design people have talked about structure as the reporting relationship and that the informal people talk about every other relationship that you can conceive of, then you have a way to bring them together because it's just the attention to different set of relationships. Mm -hmm. The other thing came from the eyes, which is that, and this is not to discredit at all any of the very nice work that other people have done, but when they would show you, said, this is the formal structure, and they'd show you one panel, and this is the informal structure, and showed the other panel. Well, when you look at them really closely, or if you just color the dots by department, what do you see? Most of those connections are staying inside the department. Right. Right. And so I was like, ah, well, there it is. Formal structure is different. It's a certain relationship, but it's got certain properties, really interesting properties in and of itself. You know, I won't bother you with all the math of them, but it has some really elegant geometrical and mathematical properties, but that they're a very strong determinant of what's happening informal, mm. whether you, you, it doesn't have to be, but over and over again. The formal structure predicts very strongly the the broad pattern of the informal structure. Sure. So then, you know, for for me that was sort of it, and then I you know I could demonstrate that em empirically and wrote some papers on that, and uh, so that's been the difference. It allowed me to make sense of those two sort of sets of things. Well, you know, that's a place where I think organizations that graph of the formal kind of traditional organogram and then the informal that you often see and and some of the work of somebody like rob cross which mm -hmm. you're, it's like a wow to somebody who's outside of it but to what you just described is you can't dismiss those relationships between the two and if you do you're missing something else that might not even allow you to get the most in an intervention exactly okay so then it allows me to say focus on the boundary spanning relationships and of course they know that because they've done that he's one of them that looked at absolutely you know, the disproportionate effect to performance and other things from people who have lots of boundary spanning relationships so what it does is it gives me a chance to say we've got a very well-defined set of boundaries that everybody knows people forget that everybody's comfortable with the notion of an org chart now, but they weren't 150 years ago, mm -hmm. right? But they are now. And I think in less than another 150 years, everybody will be very comfortable with the idea of the informal networks. But we're kind of like the formal structure charts in, you know, this part of history came out of the, out of the railroad. And so we now have a, a sense where we're still pretty early on with the understanding of the structure of social capital. Mm. But I'm confident that these kinds of graphs will be just as common and just a, a, a insightful and useful in the coming decades, hopefully sooner rather than later. I hope so. I'd like to see it before I get too old to actually play around with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we need people that are pushing the envelope like you. So. I want to talk a little bit about networks and culture. And as you know, networks are how things get done and sometimes blocked in organizational life. We, we've just gone through a, a pandemic in a way we're still kind of gently in it. We've had a racial reckoning of sorts, but now people are trying to return back to their offices and um, it's a challenge for some. I, I'm, get, I'm hearing these things from my clients all the time. People are used to the new way as if it's the way it's going to be new forever. Just kind of when you push all, kind of mash all those things together and think about ONA and being able to use ONA as a tool to work through that. 
What are your thoughts about all these intersections of all this complexity? And do you see distinctions on how we might be able to address it with ONA between what we know about happening in the U.S. and what we're seeing, particularly in Europe and ex-U.S.? Yeah, the, a number of points there, and I'll sort of begin with what you observe inside the organization, right? So if we take that as a form of social organization, there are obviously more informal ones, communities, clubs, people, countries, social systems. Right. But if we stay with the organizational part, if we think about how the formal ties are strong but not perfect predictor of the informal ties, when you break that down, what do you find? You find different, you find a distribution of ties from people who have none, who are isolated, to people who have a lot. And that a lot can mean in people, you know, in the middle, and that a lot can mean different things. It could mean a lot from within the department. So it could be a big company, I'm in finance, and I have 10 connections to people in finance across the five different subgroups of finance. That can make me a broker of a certain kind because maybe I'm in touch with people who are otherwise not in touch with each other. Or I'm someone that everybody comes to and sees as the most important central person. They seek me out for advice or my approval. And so I'm the center of a group of people who are also very well connected to each other. That could also play out across the entire organization. So not just within finance, but I've got 10 connections to HR, to manufacturing, to different locations. That makes me more global broker. But this distinction, if we take the high-end people with lots of connections, between whether you exhibit your network, your personal network shows a lot of closure. So again, central to a lot of people who are sort of in a well-defined community and interact with each other, or central to people who aren't hmm. well-connected. Those people are both amazingly important in an organization because they make up a disproportionate amount of the social capital. This is often not recognized or appreciated, explicitly acknowledged, right? And so in any social system, you're going to find people like this. Believe me, a couple of years ago when my daughter was in second or third grade, I had her go to everybody in class and ask them, who do you like to play with during break, right? And then she brought the information home and we made a social network out of it, right? So I've been teaching her this since she was seven. <laughs> and seven-year-olds can understand. Right. right. And I said, now tell me who these people are. And we talked about who those people are. Right. So it turns out she was one of the more brokerage who liked to play with boys and girls, but there were girls who only played with other girls and there were boys who only played with other boys. So to recognize that there are these differences and it's not accidental, it's personality driven. Mm -hmm. Personality explains a huge amount of which one of these people you are. Mm. Right. And so does your organization culture. When I was at Boeing, they used to say, oh yeah, Fred over there. You know, in the among the electrical engineers and the electromagnetics group that say he's forgotten more than most of us will ever even know. That's a huge compliment. When you had a question, go ask Fred. He knows like everything, right? And so that's a kind of influence. They did not appreciate or even I think recognize that there were other kinds of ways to be influential. In fact, those people might be kind of seen as superficial. He's not really one of us. He's always talking to those other people and business people, whatever. So knowing that you've got folks like that is hugely important to sort of tap into what's happening in a social setting. Mm -hmm. People are different personalities. They see the world differently and they behave differently. If you want to hold something together, those are the people that 
we should look for, no matter what the social system is. I'll stop there. I could go on. No, would you call them, is that where that language of key node comes from? Or are you talking about bridging ties? Like what? So bridging ties, so a key node generally can be, or a key player can be anybody that has lots of connections. But one of the things that people particularly appreciate, consider the converse where people are looking at dark networks and, mm. you know, criminals or people who remain hidden or, or secretive and they want to dismantle that network. Remember the old strategy was back in the drug war days and get Pablo, right? Find your Pablo and, you know, decapitation attack. Well, sometimes taking out the head of the cartel or an organization isn't sufficient. It can reconfigure. So there's also this idea of look for those people that are going to cause it. If you take them out or arrest them, whatever it is, that the network breaks into fragments. Mm. If they're not, so the, 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 the top guy, El Jefe, can still stay, but he's isolated from everybody. Sure. That's, another, that's another way to do things. Sure. Right? So if you're, if you're thinking, but I, you know, I prefer the constructive case. I don't do law enforcement and you know, <laughs> intelligence work or anti-terrorism. But the idea is still the same, that there are really key people in networks. And it's not necessarily a function of hierarchy. When you're looking for those key players, it can have a lot to do with uh, personality. It takes a certain kind of person to do that. And having recognized that, I realized that in my day-to-day -day social interactions, I'm not that kind of person because it actually takes energy out of me to do it. I know mm -hmm. how to do it. Mm -hmm. I know how I'd do it if I were advising someone else to do it. But for me to do it, is an enormous taxation of energy. There's a huge cognitive and affective component to it. Sure. I don't have that type of mind and body which relishes it or gets energized by it, but there are people who do. Sure. So you're kind of on the introversion scale of personality. You're on the extreme to more introverted than less so? I can, you know, because being in the teach room, it's back to acting mm. again. It's a mask and I put on and then I go teach and then when I'm back to not doing that, my most content days and times are sitting right where I am now, on the sofa, at home, in the quiet, and that's how I accumulate energy and do my best work. When I first got out of MBA and I went to work in HR in a big company, I was like, oh man, I've got people coming in my office every 10, 15 minutes. How's a guy supposed to think? And then Don was like, ah, oh, they didn't bring you in to really think. They blocked me in to do a lot of executing, right? <laughs> they know what they want done. They need someone to do it, and you need to execute on that. Of course, you're intelligent. They want smart people to do it, but they weren't looking for me to come up with new ideas. I've got to go somewhere where I can come up with new ideas. Mm. Could I do that job? Of course I could, right? Of course I had the intellectual ability to do it, but I didn't have the personality disposition that would have me out and knocking on doors and going and looking at people and, and having 50 interactions a day. So, so tell me just as briefly as you can, when you talk, think about the personality component, what kind of personality plays that role of broker that plays that role of lots of ties? What do they do? Well, one of the things that's been said is that if you imagine yourself as being one of those people, right, or would like to be, what are, if you, you could sort of give one piece of advice, what would that be? And it's often said, try to be interested rather than interesting. So that shows some genuine interest in what other people do mm -hmm. and how they do their work. So it doesn't have to be intellectual curiosity, but it is of a kind, right? Okay. So this question comes up a lot. In fact, I'm working it into my presentation I've got for uh, going back to London next week. 
And so let me just read off for you a couple of things. You know, stop me at any point because I'm looking at the PowerPoint. But if it says, you know, so I've got these slides that says network roles and relationships. Who are your connectors, central connectors and brokers, right? And so what are some of the characteristics? So generally they're seen as having uh, very different constellations of personality characteristics. So here are some of the things that typify brokers. They claim a personality of an entrepreneurial outsider versus the conforming and obedient insider. They view themselves as authors of their own social world. For brokers, establishing relations with otherwise disconnected people means negotiating ambiguity and conflicting demands. Mm -hmm. Without them, groups drift apart. Two personality characteristics most often claimed by brokers are their desire to be in a position of authority, but also their belief that success will come from their ability to create an aura of excitement. Other key characteristics, they're very independent, they like convincing each other, so they like persuasion, their experience with overcoming resistance, they're very concerned with the accuracy of their information on their colleagues. Central connectors, on the other hand, see themselves as adding value through providing infrastructure and stability. They leave well enough alone. Their, pro their preference for project teams is to closely follow the mandate of the original group. They closely follow their employer's wishes, thrive on the social support of close colleagues. They're drawn to stability and they focus on the technical details of their assignments. That was me. That last one, that central, that was my personality uh, up through uh, the time I entered business school. And then a slow transformation started to occur, but in many ways I'm still that, that personality of the central connector. Wow. Right? Wow. It's just that I know how to recognize and appreciate who the others are now. Right, right, right. Can you almost walk into a place? I mean, obviously you have your tools and after you've been inside of a place for a while, can you somewhat start identifying people? Yeah. Yeah. It's not like it's a superpower, it just came from practice, right? So if you've seen my LinkedIn for the last you know year, I've written about some of them. Right. So I did a lot of these social network analyses on faculty or especially on students, right? And it's funny, they still remember, right? Several years later. So yeah, I got to where I could sort of tell them or with a few clues that's like, ah, okay, this one here or that one there. And, and so, yes, and that's all the more underscores how I know that I'm not one, maybe in an intellectual sphere. So mm -hmm. that intellectually, I'm very eclectic in terms of I'll look anywhere in any kind of field to get the information, the citations, the relevant research that I need. So I'm very much that way with ideas but not in terms of my day-to-day sure, interaction. Sure, right? sure, sure. So, you know, I really want to see this, and I imagine we're on the same page there. More companies use ONA. Mm -hmm. And after doing that work with Peter Gray and, and Rob Cross some years ago, I was like, wow, this is obviously going to be huge. It's going to blow up, right? Uh-huh. But it still seems like relatively few companies use ONA. Yeah. How can we change this so that it's seen as you're really a necessary component either of people analytics or just of organizational development and design? Right. If, what can we do to get more people in, engaged with it? Well, if it were to use a, a parallel from sort of the early days of the uh, Christian religion, we need more evangelists, right? I mean, think about it. The overwhelming majority of people who are most able and most competent to do this are coming out of academia and they do have PhDs 
And it doesn't mean that you have to have that in order to do it. But we've had a hard time doing that crossing the thing they talk about in innovation and diffusion of innovation. Mm -hmm. The people who are most able to do that have very comfy academic positions and titles and tenure and get paid very lucratively to keep doing what they're doing. It's a very low risk, no risk way to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I have those, I have that caliber and those qualifications, but I'm not currently in that position. So it gives me a chance to sort of do that. So how will I personally go about it? I'll tell you more about sort of the upcoming interviews and with what universities I have, you know, sort of later. But if I'm able to swing that, then say now, yesterday was my 60th birthday. Congratulations. Thank you. So over the next 12 years, maybe I can train a thousand people, you know, somewhat competently and maybe a few hundred really well, then who can sort of carry the message on from there? Because right now, and this is not meant as a term, a sign of disrespect to anyone out there who's trying and learning to do this, but the kind of things I'm talking about with a broad level, the org design level, I don't think there are 50 people in the world who can do that competently. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you come down to the team and group level, there are a lot of them, but they're mostly academics. And so they're teaching it to their students But that doesn't mean that they're being equipped. They're teaching them well, but it doesn't mean that the person is then equipped to go into a company and do that because as a relatively new person, the company already has its ways of of doing things. And then you get into the sensitivity issues around who will be asked what and what will you do with this information and so on. And it slows the rate of adoption way down. Sure, sure. Tell us... I know you've been doing some cohort learning. I'm inviting people on LinkedIn and and probably some other folks just reach out to you naturally because they see some of the things that you share. What do you think we could, how do we find you? How do we get in contact with somebody like uh, Dr. Hunter to talk to us or work us through this learning ONA if people want to learn more about it? How would they discover you and the work that you're up to? LinkedIn is one good way, and you'll see a link there also to the company that I'm working with here in Sweden. I'm co-founder. It's called Org Analytic. But so that that's certainly one way to do it. And I was putting together some teaching materials, but then I stopped on that. So I had like a six-lesson lecture series set, and I stopped after three. So it wasn't as much feedback as I thought I would get in interaction. I realized that I think it has a lot to do with the platform. But aside from that, as they say, my DMs or my messages are always open. So I do hear from a lot of people who want to know a little bit more, point direction to. So a lot of conversations with folks literally all the way from Australia to South America to, you know, Canada and so on. And we're trying to see whether we can sort of make things work. A few people I've set up on what I'll call self-directed learning, which says, okay, if you think you can pull that off in your company and that people will let you do it, or if you're the decision maker, here are the things you need to do. So one, I just work with a company in Latin America and I let them do basically the whole thing. I told them what to do with it sort of step-by-step. And and that's the thing is that there needs to be hands-on learning. So one of the other things that I think is a potential drawback uh, for diffusion is that I can give people data set after data set in my class, and I do, And they get competent with the skills, but it doesn't ever really make sense to you until 
you do it in an organization that you know that you're part of and you know right 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 and then you're like i and it takes an additional level there it takes it to an additional level so you need theory and and you need practice with the right context to make it really make sense yeah probably one because then you start to understand immediately oh i see why that woman or that guy yeah yes because and you start to make those connections otherwise when i give students it doesn't matter who the people are they don't even a lot of times i don't know the people right so even in consulting i'm doing it i'm setting it up but to me the names could be anything i could just give them all numbers or initials because i don't know any of the people but they know and that's when I see, when I'm looking and I see what I call the knowing glance or one person in the room looks at the other person and goes. <laughs> <laughs> then you know that you've helped them uncover something. That's fantastic. It gave them a view to see their organization in a way that is not possible aside from this methodology. Okay. You could arrive at many of the same broader conclusions, but to be able to, and this is the beauty of it, you can look at the macro structure and then drill down to specific individuals. Got it. That is what traditional org design wasn't doing. Right. It stayed very high level, very abstract. Hmm. Great. Well, this has been delightful. Starling, is there anything that I should have asked or that you would like to add to what we've talked about so far? No, not, not in particular. I guess if I were just to say sort of a parting shot is that a network perspective, if you want to call it a relationship perspective, can be used as sort of a macro view or a high level sort of meta view for a lot of things that go on in organizational behavior and discussions of leadership. As you understand, I don't think I used the word once during the word leadership once while we were talking. It's not because I'm afraid of it. It's just that it is such a crowded field that I'm more of a green field kind of, or a blue ocean kind of guy, right? I'm looking for, and having said that, this can be an overarching lens. So one of the other things that needs to be done, unfortunately, it's very unlikely that I will do it. It goes back to teaching organizational behavior. Network analysis can be a lens by which everything that's currently in the canon or in the standard textbooks of organizational behavior, maybe not reframed, but can certainly complement all the things that are there. That's something that desperately needs to be done so that people can start getting this exposure early. That when they're taking org behavior, business students are taking org behavior in business school, it's a required course. They can get their first introduction to network analysis as a view of making sense of motivation, of individual differences, of structure, of communication, of leadership, conflict. Everything that's in the standard book could have this as an overarching frame or as a complement to it. And I really hope someone who's listening will take up that task. There are a few rewards for a person in my position to be able uh, to do that, but I hope that someone else will uh, heed the call. Absolutely. I, I see the same possibility. And because of our work in diversity, equity, and inclusion, I see it also as a space to explore those notions of difference and similarity without always attributing it to a single factor. And so there's all these things and possibilities inside the networks that allow us to see with a different kind of expanse of our attribution to what is. And then that's what makes it so fascinating to me. Yeah. And this could be, a, again, if people like this one and want to have, we could talk an entire session. I could even take you through some data and things we've got uh, about that. But broadly, 
it allows us to think of even things like, you know, belongingness or DEI mm -hmm. from a perspective of saying, let's look at actual connections mm -hmm. things that we can. And then if we were to find that certain people were on the periphery. So just to give you a quick example, when I did one of these for the faculty at Carnegie Mellon, the dean asked me if I could do it. I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. So we had 50 or so faculty. And remember, we were all Western trained academics and coming here. And so, but there were three Middle Eastern faculty and all of them were on the periphery of the network. Wow. And, and so I said, why is that? And so I had to look and see and say, oh, Mar, he just got here, right? So he'd only been here a few months when the survey, so he doesn't know anybody yet. And then there was someone else that's like, oh, she's the person from the other university who comes over to teach Arabic. She comes over, she leaves, and then she's gone. She's never here for the faculty meetings. And the third one, well, she was on maternity leave or sabbatical. I forget which one it was. But those are the kinds of things that immediately caught your attention. He's looking at the name to go, why are all the Arabs on yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Like, turns out there was an explanation, right? And so these kinds of things, but when you look at the macro structure first and the, or the, the structure of connections and then see how much does race or identity or anything else explain that pattern rather than having that as the starting point, it allows us to contextualize it in a way that isn't as doesn't put people immediately on the defensive of having to or to personalize mm -hmm. it or see it as existential. Mm -hmm. There's a pattern of interactions. And if I find out all my 20 somethings or all of my African Americans or whatever are balkanized or are peripheral and not in the flow, then I can look at it from a standpoint of let's get them in the flow. Right. Rather than to focus on things that are often very immutable. Yeah. Wow. So I we just left everyone with a taste of what my next conversation <laughs> with with Dr. Starling David Hunter. And the next time we're also going to hear about the the history of the Starling David Hunters that have been in the world as yeah. well. Three, three, two, and uh, yeah, one, one, two, and three, senior, junior, and now there's even a fourth, my nephew, but yeah, I'll, I'll fill you in on that too. Great. Family tree, which is a kind of network, right? It's a hierarchy. Absolutely. Great. A genetic network. <laughs> Darling, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Hope to talk to you again. If you are committed or simply a little bit curious about how to make DEI accessible to everyone, actionable, that is unambiguously prioritized and sustainable, aligned with personal and organizational purpose, hit the subscribe button. Make it a great day. Peace.